This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our Sunday mailbag edition. Doc, I'm not even going to say special. I'm just going to say Sunday mailbag because it is what we do these days. The doc I refer to, of course, is Dr. Anibar Mahadi. I'm Scott Phillips. G'day, Doc. How are you? G'day, Captain. I'm good. We are recording the not-so-special special episode. No longer special. I think it's still special. I, I'm, I'm content to say it's special just because it's impressive and valuable as opposed to unusual and exciting. You just, Can I get away with that? Yeah, well, you just gave yourself a bunch of credit, like, you know... Uh, Except no, it's all you. Hey, it's all you exceptional, mate. awesome, great. Well, that sounds good. Let's go. <laughs> Let's stick with that. Doing what I can. Doing what I can. <laughs> all right, buddy. Let's get. We, 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 as always, mate. We've got such a massive, massive amount of uh, amount of questions to get through. So let me. Um, let's let's see what we can do, and and go as we go. All right. Here we go. The first question is from Ben. Ben says, "Hey, Scott and Doc, I did a very foolish thing." Now, he's used a lowercase f, so I'm tipping what comes next isn't exactly something he's uh, going to shout from the rooftops. I took your advice and listened to what I thought was the audible version of the little book of behavioral investing. It was actually the little book of common sense investing by John Bogle. I twigged after six hours, (laughs) which I love, Ben. Thank you for the honesty, mate. He says, the book was, however, very interesting and made a strong case for investing in a low-cost index fund that tracks the S&P 500. Now, we should note, John Bogle is an American, of course. It also suggested avoiding fund managers as they will always struggle to beat the market after fees. I would love to get your opinion on fund manager performance, particularly those in Australia. He then says he thinks he's, I'm working you too hard, mate, but I'm just going to ignore that bit because I don't That think is I'm, absolutely, well, saw, well, that's so true. <laughs> he, he has figured it out. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. So that's the that's the question. What's your answer? Well, okay. So um, it is true that a large percentage of fund managers do not beat the market. Um, that's, a, that's a published fact. That's a known fact. Um, you there are many sources you could get like you know Morningstar for example carries a list of fund managers and or the funds not fund managers Morningstar would have a list of funds for example and they would rank them by uh, say things like you know one year performance three year performance maybe even five year performance um, so you could look at that uh, now like everything in investing right what you're looking at really is trailing performance right um, so you know uh, what that tells you is that a particular fund has a good track record or not. Um, and that, you know, like as we always say, you know, past performance is no indicator of future performance. It gives you some indication, uh, but it's not, it, there's no direct <laughs> co- uh, directional co- uh, correlation, right? You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, it tells you something about the fund manager or about the fund, the mandate and so on. So, I mean, I, I think you, yes, one could put money in, into fund. One would need to look at what the mandate is of that fund, what it is trying to do. Uh, who's managing it, uh, or who are the people managing it, um, and things like that. There's a little bit of you know uh, uh, work involved. So I wouldn't rule out funds um, by you know Bogle being the the uh, the founder of uh, Vanguard. Uh, I mean he's 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 in a way selling his book, and 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 to a large extent I think. What he's saying is true that a large fraction of managers mm-hmm. don't beat the market and therefore if they don't beat the market well you know you're better off just buying the market which in this case he's referring to as mm-hmm. s&p 500 um so 
Yeah, like I don't have too much to say. I mean, I don't completely disagree with him, but I don't completely agree with him either. Um, yeah. Nice. I I'm gonna I'm gonna say something similar, but from a different perspective. So you know, the reason Bogle is right is almost definitional. So we know the market goes up. Let's say ten percent because it's around. It makes my life easier. And if the market goes up ten percent, that means the sum total of every investor's return must average out to ten percent money weighted. And so if you've got a, a fund manager who does twelve percent, then and just I know it's not exactly the average. Someone will tell me it's the media or the mode or God bless you. Just work with me, people. Um, if someone does twelve, someone else got to do eight, right? If there's only two, man, two fund managers in the market, equally weighted, if one did twelve percent and the market average was ten, one must be doing eight by definition. And so. That, that's almost specifically why, A, firstly, some fund managers must underperform by definition. They can't all beat the market. It's just not possible. Secondly, of course, Bogle would talk about fees. So if you've got, not only is there one with 12 and one with eight, but if they're both charging 1%, well, the one that's doing 12 is actually only doing 11, which is still fine as market beating. The guy doing eight actually only does seven. And Warren Buffett's written about what he calls the helpers before, basically saying, you know, the sum total of the market is, is given to all investors except for the bit that we all shell out in fees. And to some degree, you know, Bogle is saying and Buffett is saying, hey, just be careful because A, maybe you'll get a fund manager who doesn't beat the market or even B, if you do before, let's get one who beats the market before fees. After those fees, guess what? You may not necessarily get the sort of result that you've been looking for. And I think Bogle is unquestionably mathematically correct on that one. As you say though, mate, there are more than one way to skin a cat. And so at some level, I think there's some value in saying, you know, where do we want to invest our money? How do we want to invest our money? Uh, frankly, you know, we, I'll be, I'll be really, you know, kind of put ourselves in the crosshairs here, mate. It's the same for every stock picker, not just fund managers. You know, we are part of that, you know, stock picking universe of people, which includes fund managers. And so, at some level, that is exactly the kind of the way this nets out. There is that question of what happens next. How do you manage that, you know, that decision or that that problem? Um, someone's going to beat the market. I mean, someone else has to lose by definition. And so that's a very reasonable thing that Bogle says. And for most people, he's saying, look, if you don't think you can beat the market or you don't, or you don't know you can beat the market or you don't have someone who you think can do it for you, guess what? Buy the index, go fishing. I've said that many, many, many times. Now, it so happens that our, uh, I mean, our businesses are all beating. I think you know, EO is certainly beating the market. SA is beating the market. Our two services in the US, our, our co-founders and and the guys who are running the two longest running um, investment services from the Motley Fool in the US, Tom and David Gardner, are both soundly beating the market. So it can be done, of course, by definition. You just need to be careful who you're investing in. And I think Bogle's saying for the average person, if you're not prepared to take the time, effort, energy to find out, then just buy the ETF. And I think in that case, absolutely right. Um, in terms of fund manager, so, so Ben, you asked about fund manager performance. I guess that's the honest answer, mate, is you know, that is the problem. Now, if you want to try and pick a fund manager, and try and get market beating performance. Look at that track record. So again, like ours, like other fund managers, look at that track record. The one watch out I will say is be careful that the same guy or girl is actually running the fund. When we say fund manager, often we, we're talking about or people think about you know, uh, Morningstar as a fund manager or Magellan as a fund manager or Perpetual or Platinum or anything else. That's all, that's, which is absolutely right. But if the person who did the job, if I was running Perpetual last year and now I'm running Platinum, and you're investing on my last year's performance at Perpetual, guess what, I'm not there anymore, so you may not get that result. So not only the fund manager as an entity, but the person, the portfolio manager, the person who's actually making the decisions, it's their track record that matters, and some do. Peter Lynch did spectacularly well for many, many years in the, in the 80s. Um, Care Nielsen's got a fantastic record. Hamish Douglas from Magellan's got a fantastic record. There are people who seem to be able to beat the market. You wanna make sure you get their track record right if you're gonna invest in a fund manager. More broadly, I think you've got to be careful about those fees and make sure you actually are getting what you're paying for. 
Any else for you, mate? Nothing. All right, question from Stephen. Hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Listen every week. Thank you, Stephen. You put a lot of effort into it, and there is no doubt why it ranks as the top money podcast in Australia. Mate, you said that, not me. Full on, he says. I have a question. I've noticed some companies grow their total earnings through acquisitions rather than through expanding their own business or what he calls their organic growth. We'd agree with that definition. (laughs) It seems even though they can announce an increase in revenue or earnings each year, it is the earnings per share which really matters. Do you guys have a view on which form of expansion is better? And secondly, what are the best growth indicators to look for in investing a company, uh, sorry, in assessing a company for investment? Yours foolishly, Stephen. All right, Doc, so let me go with the first one first. Which form of expansion is better, organic growth or acquired growth? Well, well, like, okay, so there's no, I wouldn't say that there's, there's one is better than the other in the sense that you can make a very clever acquisition-driven growth and that might work out as long as you're paying the right price for it. Um, the risk is lower, of course, with, I guess, organic growth. So that's the thing, right? I mean, the organic growth probably has lower risk if you can keep driving. If, you're mar- if you've got larger market, if you've got a large market and you've got a product that is good product market fit, you can keep growing it every year. Um, that is uh, that is really good. If not, I mean, you know, a lot of companies make bolt-on acquisitions. So they acquire technology, they acquire a piece of, you know, software, they acquire a piece of, you know, maybe an adjacent uh, consumer product, and then they basically use this, for example, yeah. distribution to distribute the same thing. That can work really well as long as it's done at the right right price. Um, so I wouldn't say one or the other. What I think is really bad is uh, a lot of companies that make a lot of acquisitions because they're trying to just build an empire, and 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 the empire building is where it gets really hard. Where what happens is the revenue goes up, total revenue is going up. But the total dilution is also going up on an a per <laughs> on a per share basis. Actually, even the owner, yeah. you know the uh, the company the the managers running the ship, they, they they probably even don't realize that they're actually doing shareholder distract mm. uh, destruction um, while actually uh, you know building the empire in terms of revenue. <laughs> so uh, I mean I think that's the form that's the most dangerous. Um, the other thing I will say uh, this is actually a relatively subtle point is. Acquisition. So there's a, there are a lot of companies on the ASX that follow this acquisition-driven model. This is actually a very common approach on the ASX. One thing that can be a problem here is if acquisitions are a significant component of your growth strategy, then when you are small, it works really well, right? I mean, you know, suppose you're earning $100 and you can buy $50 or $20 of earnings at $10 a piece, then you get that growth, 20% growth. When you become big, it becomes harder to find an equivalent size dial moving acquisition. And, at, and and then it becomes a problem because if your growth is mostly coming from acquisitions, well, either you have to go find many small ones to grow or you have to find this big one. And the big one typically involves even higher risks, right? Because you know there's a lot of people involved, a lot of things involved. Uh, so that's where things can get uh, nasty. So acquisitions work really well for small companies. Um, uh, but it becomes harder and harder for bigger companies, uh, often because they mean you know the size of the deal uh, means a lot of things can go wrong. So those are some, just some high-level thoughts. Nice one, mate. I'm going to add much more to that other than, um, as always, you want to look at the ability of any company to sustain its growth moving forward. You've alluded to that, Doc, with your answer. Um, little companies growing by acquisition, one to two, two to four, four to eight, they're easy. 
when you go from 120 to 240, whether that's units or sales or stores or whatever it is, it's obviously much, much harder. And exactly your point, mate, about the acquisition. Now, the same is also true, by the way, of organic growth. So, you know, Woolies have gone to a seat, they haven't acquired anything in years, uh, there's nothing meaningful. They've just run out of growth potential, right? Whether by organic or acquired means, they're literally, there's nothing left to grow into. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the available runway left is super, super important. So that, that's that's kind of getting on to the second part of, of, um, of the question. But, but you know, kind of, I don't think either is better or worse. In fact, as always, the kind of the answer is it depends, which is a really crappy, you know, I mean, we're doing a, a long form podcast, thankfully, rather than a short, you know, one, one sentence answer. Um, it depends because if you've got quality managers doing quality acquisitions at, qu- at good prices, it makes a ton of sense. If you've got terrible managers doing terrible acquisitions, then it makes no sense. And, and the same with organic growth, quite honestly. I mean, organic growth has to come through some sort of execution, right? It may not have a, an upfront ticket price like X million dollars to buy a business, but if you're going to spend shareholders' money on research development or marketing or sales efforts or something, um, then you want to make sure that, it, that organic growth can continue. And that's we've talked about plenty of companies over the past few weeks in both of those areas where things have gone well or come a cropper because just simply couldn't continue on the same vein as already was. What are the best, to second part of Jason's question, what are the best growth indicators to look at in assessing a company for investment? If you had to pick a few, a couple, one, uh, what comes to mind, mate? What are growth indicators? What are you looking for specifically? Well, well, I think the top line growth is important. So is the top line growing? So when I say top line, I basically mean sales. Um, you know, strong sales growth is is always a, a good indicator. The uh, I guess the other thing is that you know if the if the company is growing and margin is also growing, so even just gross margin, that usually is a good indicator. Um, then the I guess the other thing to look at is you know to make any sale happen. So you've got cost of producing goods, which is basically going to show up in your margin, and margin should imp- improve mm-hmm. as you're basically producing more things so you get some scale advantages but you also uh, i mean typically you would think that you know um, typical administration costs and you know like your head office costs and so on things like that those are not going to change substantially over time what does change is marketing right so sales and marketing and, and what you would really want to see is uh, i mean you know you're getting maybe 100 percent growth but is your sales and marketing growing by 200 percent right i mean then then it's not you know you're maybe spending too much to buy acquire that growth and then maybe that growth is churning away not happening it's not reproducible and things like that so so you want to see some leverage is by what, what i mean is um, you want to see that growth in the top line but you also want to see that you can achieve that without having to you know you get double the growth but not necessarily have to double sales and marketing for example um, and then for certain type of companies uh, like especially the ones that like you know software companies which have recurring type of revenues um, I think what you want to look at is uh, sort of retention or churn. Typically, you 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 want to you want to minimize. You want to see that churn is minimized because if that if you do that, that basically means that uh, you know you you basically locked in a certain portion of the re- revenue to recur next year, and and therefore your focus can be on acquiring new customers, right? And then and then this one basically then you can separate out between you can actually spend more to acquire new customers if you can show. Um, that your current set of customers are quite sticky. So those are some of the things to uh, look at. So this is mostly for early stage companies that typically would have little to no profits. Um, as mm. profits start rolling through, you would start noticing that if there is leverage in the business, then um, the earnings would start growing from like you know a small number to, and it'll grow at, at it should grow at at a much higher pace beyond a certain point uh, compared to uh, the top line. 
uh, and and that's a good good place to be like you know where a company basically just tips into profitability and you know the the scale is working for it and it's got all its machine nicely oiled up at that point you think that you know its earnings should materially grow over time so those are some of the things to look at um, in general at a very high level um, I don't have much to add other than I guess you know price always matters and so to some degree you want to you want to have a sense of the, the kind of the, the, the maximum potential or at least the maximum reasonable like a likely potential uh, for a business and how much you're paying for that as I said um, you know with those with those acquisitive companies even if the acquisition you know, as the acquisition goes through its process if the, if there is some sort of reasonable end in sight in other words G8 education is a great one right there's only so many child care centers it can acquire and as it got bigger and bigger, the multiple you were prepared to pay should have been actually smaller and smaller over time because the future growth simply had some sort of, if not an absolute cap, some sort of likely kind of end point or a point in time where it goes from growth business to mature, in theory, hopefully, cash flow generative, but not very fast growing business. Um, now, GA didn't manage to do that and had share prices suffered ever since, hasn't regained its highs at any point since. Um, and I'll say for the record, that was a mistake I made. I didn't, I wasn't quick enough to pull down that multiple as that growth kind of continued. Um, I did think it had a couple more tricks left up its sleeve and it certainly turns out it didn't. That, that hurt our members and hurt us. So that's that's an example of a business that does. And again, the same as I said with, with organic growth. So the total addressable market and how much growth left and what that kind of flow looks like from, from growth company to mature business is really, really worth thinking about in terms of how much you're prepared to pay for the shares. So just think about that too. When, there, when there's a natural cap to growth, um, you don't want to be paying a growth multiple for a maturing business. That's not necessarily what you look for with a growth stock in, directly in terms of Stephen's answer, but it's part of, I think, the solution is making sure the value, the price you're paying, is at least relative, even, even if really broad brush, really broad ranges of value outcomes are possible, just make sure you're not paying too much for business that is otherwise maybe moving out of the growth. I won't say X growth because you know, they've almost all got some sort of growth, but certainly you want to be mindful of what's left in its in its future and when you should start to think differently about the price you're paying and, and what you expect from the company. Any more from that, mate? No, sir. Beautiful. Other Stephen. I promise it's a different Stephen. Hey, Scott and Doc, really love the podcast and have been listening to it every weekend for almost three years. Good man. Thank you. As a subscriber and reasonably experienced investor, I value your sensational blend of wisdom and sound investment advice presented with charisma and humor. I always learn something new. As always, mate, he's listening obviously to somebody else, not me. Uh, question. The majority of articles in the media focus on decisions about buying stocks with few on the process of selling. Can you give us some insights into how you go about deciding when to sell individual poorer performing stocks? Also, if you believe the market has run hard and want to take some money off the table, how do you do it across your portfolio? Is it a proportion of all stocks, those which have done the best, or the duds? Do you sell a lot at once in moderate chunks? Is it sort of dollar cost averaging in reverse? He says, I find the psychology of a selling so much harder than buying. <laughs> and then Stephen, this is very iconic. He says, I've seen your photos on the website, so I suggest keep Doc off Instagram. <laughs> I'm not sure what he means by that. Well, I, that, think he's, that, I think he's worried about the um, the food photos you might be posting. I'm not sure. That doesn't sound very flattering. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? Doesn't. All no. right, let's let's move past that one, Stephen. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt, mm. mate. You won't you won't have too much of a go. Yeah. I think you, I think he's trying to be funny. Mm. I think that's I think that's what's going on. Mm. Uh, just 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 quietly. I've always said I've got a, a great head for radio and a great voice for print. But there we go. Um, okay, selling, mate. So we talk a lot about buying. Yeah. How do you think about when, how, what, why, what price to sell? Yes. Yeah, so I'm not a big. Okay. So I'm not a big seller in my personal portfolio. I actually don't sell that often. 
Um, in in fact, there would be there might be even and this might sound this might sound uh, counter to what you know there might be recommendations that I've made which I have you know recommended as a service. I bought the shares after maybe recommendation was made. And I've recommended selling it, and I did not actually get around to selling uh, my shares. Uh, and we don't have to sell. There's nothing that says we have to sell because it's you know once you sell. So and the reason behind that is. Um, well, sometimes I just get lazy, but I, I'm lazy about selling. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's the real reason. And the other times what happens is stuff that I'm trying to actually have recommended selling, you know, in dollar figures, it, it might be so small, it's actually not worth it to sell. Um, what that tells, I guess, uh, Stephen, uh, is, uh, uh, is effectively, I try to give companies enough rope. And if you give companies enough rope, sometimes what happens if things don't go right, especially the type of companies I'm looking at, then uh, I'm looking at a big, biggish loss. The the time that I'm gonna actually consider selling it is really around this time, uh, uh, closer to tax time. <laughs> if if I have got gains and I need to, uh, you know, <laughs> offset something, that's when I actually think about selling. So really, okay, nice. No, uh, tax reasons. Yeah. Not. So if, from a taxation point of view, if I have a loser and I really don't believe in that loser ever, you know, coming back, and then that's mm-hmm. that's a good reason to sell. The the other, I mean, from a service point of view, like if the thesis is broken. And then we sell. Like everything, if, if you know, if you bought something for, you know, because it's going to do this, this, and this, and this, and now we know for sure it's not going to do any of those things because we were just wrong or something <laughs> has changed. That's a good enough reason right. to sell. So if the thesis, if you have an original thesis and that's changed, um, then, you know, that's a good enough reason to sell. Often what happens though, and this is the reason why we have big, uh, you know, might have big losers is, you know, something happens, you know, and nothing happens, you know, your thesis does not break at one go, right? So you have multiple legs to your thesis and your thesis would break slowly, right? And when something breaks, the market is pretty quick to correct it. And then you, well, you compensate, if you compensate for that and look at your thesis, you know, your valuation change and you say, okay, maybe it's okay, right? It's no longer a buy, but probably a hold, but she's not a sell. And then, you know, you continue through this process and eventually what happens, well, by the time you actually realize that this is never going to make it, you've had multiple legs and downturn on it. So it's selling by in general is hard here's the reason okay I'll come to the bigger reason and then I'll, I'll, I'm actually making this too long the reason I don't think about selling often is if you do the buying correctly then selling actually does not matter right and it doesn't matter is right. it, it doesn't matter because you know if you buy correctly and something goes up tenfold fivefold and and selling results in an 80 percent loss then one you know, one fivefold is going to wipe out many of these, you know, four of those, uh, uh, you know, losers, right? The other thing is that I almost mm. always wouldn't add or buy something that where something is going wrong or something is not working out with the okay. hope of a recovery. So I'm never buying, you know, the, the classic, uh, I used to do this, uh, you know, catch the falling knife. I tend not to do that. I try <laughs> hard not to do it. I try hard not to think so I'm not a mean reversion investor. I would never buy something because mean is going to revert. Um, you know, something is going to mean revert. That is not the style of investing I do. So because I don't do those things, I really don't have to think. I, I really focus on the growth and the growth aspects. And as long as the growth is okay, and if I'm right more often than wrong, then I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, product doesn't work out, services doesn't work, don't work out of the company that, you know, I'm looking at. And that's fine. And that's part and parcel of the game. So that's why I think more about buying than selling. And, and I buy on execution if it's, it's executing well and the price is okay. Um, and I'm actually quite lenient with valuation, then 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 that's fine. Nice one. I like that. Uh, I'm, I'm exactly the same point. I have 
I've cost myself more money in ill-disciplined cells. Not ill-disciplined cells. Bad decisions, frankly. I'm not going to blame ill-discipline. Uh, bad cells that I've, I've made by avoiding the losers. And I think, um, as you've nicely encapsulated, I'll just repeat, if you do the work to get the buyers right, and you're right more often than not, there's mu normally much more value in letting these things run than trying to be too clever and, and try and sell at some sort of opportune time. Now, that means I'm going to ride the waves. And so really, honestly, this is really important. I don't care about market volatility personally, as in I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go through it. It hurts at the time, but I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm not trying to get clever. I'm not trying to get smart because I don't know when the market's going to fall. I don't know when share prices are going to fall. If I knew either A, I'd be a billionaire or everyone else would know as well. In either case, well, nothing's going to happen, right? So you're literally speculating about price and timing. That's a very, very unhelpful way to try and invest from experience. I wouldn't try and do it. I just don't think it's worth trying to do. So um, a couple of things, Stephen, just, just looking back through your question, mate, you say, you know, when to sell poorly, individual poorer performing stocks. I think you're inferring here price-wise. In other words, you now the price is down, is it time to sell? I don't think personally that the movement of share prices is likely predictive of anything else, um, at least not separate from the business itself. If, the, if share prices are down because the business sucks, well, that's a different thing. Uh, but if we're talking about the stock rather than the business, I don't, I don't buy or sell because the share price has moved in a particular direction. We always want to buy at cheaper prices. We always want to sell at higher prices, but it's not predictive in my mind. Other than I said, if the business sucks, of course the share price is down, but it's not the, the, the share price in that case is the is the effect, not the cause. And so looking at the business is much more important. Um, again, do I think the markets run too hard? I, I've never, ever, ever in my entire life sold because I thought the market was too expensive. Um, frankly, I can vividly remember a conversation. I think I've recalled this before. I was speaking to a colleague of ours, Doc. Um, it must be five years ago now who said at the time, well, maybe we just don't recommend a stock this month because the markets run pretty high. And they went higher and higher and higher. Uh, you know, and it would have cost a fortune. You know, we, we would have waited three years. <laughs> I don't know if you're a thing during that three-year period. And, and frankly, we would have been wrong the entire time. And so that's, you know, this is where it's really hard. It's so speculating on prices and on timing is just really, really difficult. I don't think it can be done reliably. So I choose not to. Um, I, I, by the way, Stephen, to your point, the psychology of selling is much harder than buying. Absolutely. And that's exactly why we try and do it less frequently. Doc and I are both saying the same thing for kind of exactly that reason, right? Like it's just, if we can get the buying right, you kind of need to sell as often as you, need, you think you might. Um, it's also worth saying in the US, our colleagues did some work oh, wait, a few years ago now, Doc, and they found that if they'd never sold a single recommendation ever, even the ones they were right about, if they'd never sold any of them, um, they would have been better off than having sold them because it turns out that some of the ones they sold turn around or do better than they expected. And again, because of the way this maths works, the most you can lose 100%, the most you can make is effectively infinite. That's not literally, of course, but um, you know, it is an asymmetric bet if you're buying quality businesses in the first place. And that's what they found was that buying the quality business was the important thing, not selling them at some appropriate time. So it's a bit of a non-answer from both of us, Stephen, but it's also a really important answer because that's exactly how we do it. I was going to quickly add one thing, actually, while you were speaking, uh, and, and, and this, this might actually be an answer of, of some form. Um, so I think what, uh, what both of us were talking about was um, less from sort of a portfolio point of view or and, and more from like, you know, how we sort of manage our services and idea services. Mm -hmm. One of the things... Um, one of the things that I guess one may think about is um, if you have a portfolio of fixed amount, which you really are not adding new capital mm -hmm. to, then there, then there may be situations where you have you know, a company that has become significantly large portion of your portfolio, let's say 20%, and if it has become 20% of your portfolio, then you've got basically too much in you know in in one basket and then yeah that's good and, then, and yep, then you yep. might want to trim so um in one of the in one of the sources that i that i run for the full uh, pro 
we're fixed amount of money that we're managing so we do trim and in many cases actually you know if we didn't trim it would appear that things would have been better but you're trimming just for managing that risk um, that yeah. you know if something went bad then a lot of money would be at stake so you know that's just prudent risk management in my own personal portfolio what I do is I because I'm adding funds I actually just don't add funds to positions that become outsized and I add to something else and that's my way of actually right. keeping the position sizes managed you know it still will result in lopsided positions but I don't sell in my own portfolio largely because I'm adding capital now, speaking of your own portfolio, Doc, people can join you at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, another ad, for a pretty inexpensive price. In fact, it's less than a couple of bucks a week, quite honestly. And who, I mean, I don't know. If it's not worth doing that, I don't know what it is worth doing. If your decaf soy double chai half strength weak latte is worth more to you than some of Doc's market beating investment advice, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. So how about you spend some of that dough instead on signing up to Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, where Doc and Kevin recommend some higher growth, higher risk, but we think much higher potential companies to our members every single month. It's pretty cheap. It's a very good value. You get Doc's sensational stock picking, plus Kevin's sensational stock picking and their research analysis, the whole box and dice for, as I said, less than a couple of bucks a week, which is too cheap to talk about. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get yourself some pretty impressive investment goodness. Now, of course, we should say that there are no guarantees and certainly past performance is no guarantee of future performance, blah, blah, blah. Go have a look. Check it out. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Now, Doc, I've, this, is, this is my new favorite sign-off. So, fair warning. Fools, as you're listening to this, just, just keep listening. You want to mm. hear how we finish up and I want to hear Doc's response. It's from Sarah, or it could be Sarah. I'll go with Sarah, but Sarah, if I've, or Sarah, if I've mispronounced your name, I apologize. So hello, Scott and Doc. Big fan of the podcast here. You are the best company on my walks. You know what, Doc? That's because we're in isolation and she's walking by herself. So <laughs> we, we, that's, not, that's not much better than that. doesn't say much, but I'll, we'll take it anyway, Sarah. We'll, we'll, we'll say thank you. Um, we'll just, you know. And by the way, female listener, female questioner. Love it, Sarah. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for asking a question. And please do yourself a favor. Do your friends a favor. Share some of it. Not not say us. I don't care if you don't share us or not. I hope you do. But if you don't, that's okay. Get your female friends who are investing, please. They need it. We need it. All right. She says, big fan of the podcast here. You are the best company on my walks. After a few mistakes, she says, never trust your stoner cousin saying weed is the next best thing. I can agree with that. Now, now I'm more careful about which companies to put money in. Uh, Sarah, you know what? Sometimes learning these things early in your investing career is worth so much more than a couple of big wins up front when you start to think you're invincible because making a learning a lesson five years in with much larger amounts of money is always worse than making a, an early mistake and learning a lesson with, with smaller amounts of money. So she says, I have ETFs, SVG and VOO, and a watch list that includes blue chip companies, which pretty much, pretty much make up those ETFs. However, by being too careful, I think my portfolio has done a double up, owning big companies via ETFs as well as single stocks. In other words, she might have, say, and just to use an Australian example, Woolies uh, in her portfolio, and Woolies might be a decent proportion of her ETF. Or, for example, the whole the four banks uh, make up about a third of the ASX 200. So if you're in the banks and the ASX ETF, you're kind of doubling up. She says, is this necessarily a bad thing? Should I put should I put more red panty stocks in my portfolio? For those who uh, for those who might remember, Tegan asked a question about red panty stocks and granny panty stocks, and I'm not going to have that conversation again. Suffice it to say, red panty stocks are growth stocks, exciting stocks. 
She says, or could a long-term strategy based on strong performing companies via ETFs and single stocks, even if they're the same, generate solid dividends and returns? Thank you for delivering amazing content and full on. And Doc, she finishes with hashtag get Doc on. No, not Insta. <laughs> hashtag get Doc on TikTok. <laughs> I want I want to, that, is, that is my favorite hashtag, Sarah. Thank you. You've even beaten the get Doc on Insta hashtag. My new favorite, get Doc on TikTok. All right. <laughs> hey, you know, are you on TikTok, Doc? Let's fess up. No. Oh, <laughs> I would have, but you know what? I, I assume the answer would be no, but if you'd said yes, that would have given us a whole new tangent for at least 15 minutes. All right. So Sarah's got some ETFs. She's got some big stocks that are make up part of the ETF. Is that a bad thing, mate? Is she doing the wrong thing here? Well, yeah, here's the thing, right? It's it's not a bad thing because she's she's started, she's investing, she's getting returns. I don't know these ETFs personally, so I don't have a comment on what SVG right. or VOO is. Um, but but I mean, you know, it's it's, it's step one. It so VOO is the S and P five hundred, by the way, mate. Okay, so S and P five hundred, and what is SVG on the, on the ASX? And, and what is SVG? Yep. SVG, I can't find that one, so I'm not sure. Uh, it, uh, may, maybe it might have been a typo. Uh, you know what? It probably it's probably VGS. I would guess. I ah, okay, that's okay, okay, VGS. okay. So VGS. So that's the, the yeah. Men. So that's that's the if it's VGS, that's the three hundred SX three hundred VO. Then if it's the S and P five hundred, well, I mean, you know, the, the, this is a good starting point, and you are likely to get a mix of the you know weird mix of the market returns mm-hmm. of the two markets, um, which is which is great. Um, you know, if somebody's young and they've got a long uh, you know investing horizon in front of them the you know, individual stock picking can really be useful because you can you can add a couple of percentage points even if a one percentage point makes a big difference over 30 40 years um but if that's too much work then this is fine because this is fine in the sense that well you know you've started your investing uh, you're putting your mon- money to work in the market they're getting spread across 500 us companies and 300 australian companies well that's you know uh that's pretty good and uh yeah, I mean, always, you know, uh, more individual stock picking can do better if you if you're interested in it. But you know, you have to be interested in it. You have to already have to find someone to help you out with it. Um, yeah, so there's that. But nothing wrong with this. Very very good. I like it. Uh, I actually like this strategy, Sarah. I got to say, like, it's not going to be a doc type growth strategy necessarily. Uh, particularly if they're big companies, they're not going to be fast growers probably. Although there's plenty of good quality businesses out there that are still growing. They just got to pick carefully. You know what I like about this doc is it's kind of, it's kind of like taking the index approach and then doubling down on your best ideas to kind of increase their weighting. So let's let's take a really really simple and overdone example, right? Let's say I'll use Woolies again because I mentioned it before. Let's say Woolies is five percent of the index. And if you buy the index, you're getting a 5% exposure to Woolies. Now, if you think Woolies is better than that, and you want to get a little bit of extra exposure to Woolies, you might make Woolies 7% or 8% of your portfolio by buying the ETF and adding some more Woolies to it. You're kind of augmenting the index with your favorite companies. I think that's a really, really smart thing to do, i got to say, Sarah, because you get the diversification of an ETF, and then you get on top of that an extra, you know, extra overweighting, if you like, an increased weighting to the ones you like best. I think it's a really, really smart thing to do, potentially, if it's deliberate and if you're happy with that as, as that's what you're trying to do, or at least that's what you're happy for you know, to have, have to have being done. Effectively, what you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm picking stocks that I like in the proportions that I like, and then I'm getting the rest of the market as a bit of ballast, as a bit of diversification. And I think that can be really, really smart. So as long as you're saying to yourself effectively that, which is, I'm looking at it all together, I'm, ta- I'm taking Woolies in my portfolio, adding it to the proportion of the the, the, the ETF that is Woolies, for example, and saying, great, 
I now have more, than, you know, I've got this much woolies. That's exactly as much as I want in proportion. I think that's a really smart way to do it. And whether it's, you know, this, in this case, she talks about the SP 500. So if it's Apple or Amazon or Berkshire or General Electric or whatever companies they are, we wouldn't recommend General Electric necessarily. But, you know, whatever companies they are, Microsoft, Netflix, Facebook, choose your, choose your poison. Um, you know, getting extra of those you favor, I think is a really smart way to do it. Any thoughts on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to really say. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's answer a question from James then. We're getting through these a million miles an hour, Doc. I'm happy about this. A question for the podcast and a comment. James, brackets, capital F, first capital N name, capital O only, capital P, please. (laughs) James, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Promise. James, first name only, please, all capitals. Um, I'm a convert. I started listening to the podcast in the car, put some money aside, and then started buying stocks when Mr. Market lost his marbles in March. Good man, James. Super excited, mate. Well done. I'm an Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor member now. And my portfolio consists of recommendations from our services plus Polynovo, as it's in my area of expertise. That's pretty cool. At 34, I think I'm going to be more of a doc type stock investor than a captain for the foreseeable future. He said, but no one told me I'd get a discount on wine buying stock in Treasury. James, stick with me, mate. I'll take you far. So thank you both for your work educating and encouraging to invest with reasonable goals. Goals and appreciation of macro, not being scared of volatility, a disdain for short sellers, and a great listen each week. He says, hashtag, that was not a short tangent. Not sure if it means his tangent or our tangents, mate, but they're probably both the same thing. James, that's, that's a great summary, mate. Thank you. And that's, um, I don't know, maybe we should have James on the marketing team. He says, question, given volatility in the market, how do you price your initial buy? For a stock that fluctuates. Doc suggests using a limit order at a certain price for some EO stocks. How long do you wait? Thanks again. Hashtag five stars. Hashtag get Doc on Insta. Hashtag go long. Hashtag I wish I hadn't bought Bitcoin. <laughs> James, I can't disagree with you on Bitcoin, mate. Again, some really nice hashtags coming through. Throw us hashtags, guys. It's fun for us. It's entertaining for your fellow listeners. So do, do, chuck some in. Have some fun with it. Get Doc on TikTok is still my number one, but beat it. Try and top it. Fellow fools, try and top it with your questions and comments. All right, mate. Um, given given he's all about your style of investing, I, I think he's suggesting I'm old and you're young. I'm not sure. It's probably right. Given volatility, how do you price the initial buy for a stock that fluctuates? How do you work out what price you should be paying? Well, that, that's always hard. I mean, okay. So typically, um, here's the problem. You, you can wait for a pullback on some stocks, but sometimes if you wait for a pullback, the pullback never happens and you forget about it. So that's kind of a problem. Uh, I think, you know, what I try to do is I try to work out the ballpark price I'm paying. And if the ballpark price is okay, then I am um, happy to buy. What I think he's talking about is a lot of, a lot of times what happens with small, small stocks that we recommend at EO is, you know, they experience a kind of a pop because a bunch of people are mm. trying to buy it at the same time. And, and that pushes the price up because there's not enough supply of, of shares. And 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 that's why I, I strongly recommend using limit limit orders in, in these those cases. Because if you don't, then collectively we just push the push the prices up. 
which which often what means it's an artificial uh, pop, which means in some period of time the the you know, the market would you know the, the price would stabilize right. So using limit order is useful. How long do you wait? It varies. You know, you could wait for up to a week. You know, if it doesn't if it doesn't come back in a week, then buy some anyways is what we say. And and the way I think about this is. If you're, if you're interested in a particular company, so you read a recommendation, you like it, and you think it's going to be a multi-bagger, say a four-bagger, five-bagger, whatever you think. If Let's say you think it's a five-bagger or four-bagger, then you don't want to really, you don't want to pay too much. So if it's like, you know, you don't want to pay 20% more because, you know, you, effectively that could mean you've given away some of your returns, but you also don't want to be left out trying to be, you know, a penny-wise, pound-foolish sort of thing, right? So. You know, you wait for a bit, and if you can't get a good price, you just buy anyways. And what I tend to tell people is, you know, buy a little bit, and and that's a good way to get um, to start positions in um, in risky companies or riskier companies because you know you start an initial position, then you learn about the company over time, you see the company execute. Uh, Maybe there's volatility and that allows you to buy it cheaper. Maybe it's not, but you're paying a higher price at that point, but you'll get more certainty because the higher price comes because of uh, because of execution. So I think buying over a period of time is good, especially for stocks that are going to multi-bag. Uh, then for those stocks, buying over a period of time is great because, you know, and never to anchor on your previous buy price because if, you know, some of the best stocks have delivered the best returns, you know, if they have, if something delivers, if 5x, the path to 5x is a 2x and a 3x and a 4x and a, you know then to a 5x, right? And you know while 1x to 5x is the best, it doesn't mean the 3x to 5x is not that good because it's pretty good. Even for, right. from a 3x to 5x, right? Um, so yeah, so I think that's how I look at it. Just buy over a period of time, buy start small, learn, buy more when you get more comfortable. I like that, mate. I, yeah, it, it, look, particularly if you're holding long-term stocks, particularly if they're growth stocks, not hyper-growth stocks, just growth stocks, it's hard to make a mistake on price that's bigger than, a, than making a mistake on quality, right? So yeah, I, I, you'll know the numbers, mate, I don't, but you know, Apple or Amazon, you know, if you'd bought Amazon, I'll use Amazon because I know the example. If you bought Amazon at 20 instead of 10, it's now 2,000. Nice problem to have, right? Like, you know, it's, it's one of those scenarios where, yeah, or dollar ten versus dollar twenty, or for for a, for a particular stock. Woolies was two dollars and two dollars thirty, then two dollars fifty. At what price was it a bad buy on the way to thirty five? Almost nothing, or you know, almost by definition. So, uh, again, if you if you pick the company right, far more, far more, far more time spent on that. We don't want people to pay too much and get killed with the rush for stocks. So that's where the middle orders can be helpful. But yeah, p- pennywise pound foolish, mate. Super, super clear example. I've used the example before of Warren Buffett arguing with someone about Walmart stock, and I think he. He wanted a price that was two cents a share less, and the seller didn't sell, and it cost Buffett about eight billion dollars. I think it's Australian, but whatever it is, it could be US. Doesn't make any difference of that sort of size, um, you know, it, because he didn't he didn't pay up the couple of cents. The, the lesson there was get be roughly right on valuation, but don't don't die in a ditch on on the absolute price because if you miss the chance to buy a stock because it just happens to be just outside your range, you may well kick yourself. Which is not to say buy anything at any price. It's to say if you're roughly right, close enough. Neither you nor I or anyone listening, Doc, is so good at valuation that a dollar three is a great buy and a dollar five is a terrible buy. You know, it just, just doesn't work that way. So, I agree. Um, be, be be disciplined, but don't get overwrought with with uh, trying to get exactly the right price. Mm. All right. Question from Tegan. I mentioned Tegan, the the red panty question from a couple of weeks ago. Thankfully, thankfully, Tegan has stayed away from underwear and uh, making us blush. Instead, she said, "Hi, Scott and Doc." 
I'm going to preempt this question with a disclosure. I'm a newbie investor. Well, I've owned stocks since I was 18 years old, and yes, almost two decades have passed since then, but I've only recently taken control of our shares and started making the investment decisions myself. So think of me as a second grader. I have a basic understanding of phonics, but need help with my sentence structure. So please be kind, but you two lovelies always are. Tegan is rocking the analogy stock. I've got to say, the analogy of metaphors, mm. she's absolutely nailing it. I'm loving it. So here's the question. I struggle to pay more than $10 a share. Yeah, I can sometimes get brave and pay up to 25 bucks a share if I believe in the company. But any more than that, well, I can't help but raising an eyebrow and favoring those cheaper shares instead. One of your recent recommendations at Motley Fool was for a share just short of $900 US, which makes it almost 1700 Australian with the currency conversion. How much room can a share price at that price really grow? The original share price outlay really puts me off and I find myself not even really considering it, despite all your research and valid reasons as to why to buy. Reasons that would generally have had me happily putting in buy order, but at that price, it has to go up 90 bucks a share just to match the market. She says, sorry if the reason is obvious, but this little second grader sure has her, sure has had, uh, sure has her head up high in the air with confusion. Thanks as always, Teagues. Awesome question, Tegan. You know what, Doc, I'm going to make a general sweeping statement here about the, the genders too. Women are so much better at not worrying about seeming like they're asking silly questions, right? They're kind of like, oh, look, I don't know. I might be wrong. I might be right. I'm going to ask a question I want to know. That puts them in such a better spot than most of us blokes who don't want to look silly by asking questions. So, Tegan, firstly, not a silly question at all. Secondly, good on you for thinking even if it was, you'd ask it. I love it. So it'll help you. It'll help our fellow listeners when Doc gives you the answer, which is? Well, the, the price of the share is immaterial, right? The price of the share is immaterial because what you really are thinking about, the price of the share is really the market capitalization of the company divided by the total number of shares that are out, right? So if in right. this particular example, she said $900, well, they could make it a $9 share by just multiplying the total number of shares out by by 100, right? So if you increase the total yep. number of sh shares out by 100, by a factor of 100, then the share price would be nine, not 900. Uh, so if they cut each share into 100 pieces each, yeah. the share price would fall from 900 to nine, yeah. but the company would be worth the same. Your total shareholding is still worth the same. Yeah. You just got 100 pieces at nine each rather than one piece at 900. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, what you, what you really need to think about, the share price, and, and this, I think this US versus uh, uh, Australian thing happens largely because Australian shares tend to be, you know, you, the shares we'd recommend at the EO, for example, they might be 30 cents, 40 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, you know, $2, you know, it's rare to actually find shares that are like, you know, five, $10, um, yeah. you know, whereas in the US, um, people actually have a tendency of not investing in shares that are worth $5 or less. And it's just, I think, different um, approaches to different things. So. So, it's kind of what we're used to, right? Real yeah, it's, it's, it's that sense of like the yeah, norms in the their norm. country different than the norms. It's the norm. So, yeah. and many companies try to, you know, think of this as an issue, and then they try to do what they call stock splits, which is what we explained, right? We could, you know, split the nine hundred mm -hmm. into hundred pieces, and then you get a nine dollar share. Um, so many companies do that. Some companies don't. Uh, you know, some companies famously have never stock split. So this is not. This is a. This mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Don't look at the share price as value in the sense that don't think of a high share price means that, you know, it's it's highly valued. Don't think of the low share price means it's cheap. Don't just think that if a share price is 20 cents, it's gonna go up tenfold and the share price is 900, it's not gonna go up tenfold. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Um, and largely because I think, yeah, it's again, it's got nothing to do 
uh, with the with the with the uh, with the stock prices. So, so I think that's 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 the most important thing. Ignore the price. Think in terms of I guess think in terms of how big the company can be, and uh, mm-hmm. you know potentially and what how its revenues are tracking and how the growths are and and things like that. And that that's what should give you an idea of. Uh, you know how much you know you should always think about your returns in percentage terms how much are you going to get um, in percentage terms your return right and I'll add one more thing just because a share is trading at one cent and there is a psychology in people that says oh it it can double if it goes to two cent that's really a bad (laughs) idea because (laughs) that that is just basically expecting the bid and ask to do the work for you Um, you know which often results in a lot of pain Yep, correct. I'm going to start with your percentage point, uh, point, mate, because when Tigger says it's going to go up 90 bucks to match the market, it will. That's kind of the point, right? It, it's if you look at the market level itself, and the market levels were in the hundreds of points. Now they're in the thousands of points, and they still go up 10 percent a year, which is more points each year. But the compound return is not too different over time over any extended period of time, because that tends to be what the market does, right? The value of compounding over time adds to those numbers. Now. Uh, Tegan, Doc is dead right. You know, so here's here's Berkshire Hathaway, right? I'm a shareholder. I'll disclose that. We can all smoke and and, and laugh. Um, in 1990, Berkshire shares were guess what? Seven thousand dollars a share. Seven thousand bucks. Now, you have to put seven thousand dollars together to buy one single share. It feels kind of like scary, crazy. Only one share. Looking, I've got to say, I've got a. I think it was Google. I think I bought ten shares of it. Looks really weird to have only ten shares of something. You kind of you feel like you should have more somehow. You should have hundreds of shares or thousands of shares. And so ten is it almost feels like it shouldn't be there. Almost a rounding error, right? So Berkshire seven thousand dollars for a single share in nineteen ninety feels like a lot, right? It's got to go up ten seven hundred bucks just to go up ten percent. Well, by nineteen ninety five, those shares were twenty two thousand dollars a share. They tripled in five years, even from seven thousand dollars. For twenty-two thousand in nineteen ninety-five, fast forward by ten years, two thousand and five, eighty-five thousand dollars a share. So yes, it had already gone up from seven to twenty-two thousand, which was crazy high, and then eighty-five thousand. Now, fifteen years later, they're at two hundred eighty-six thousand dollars a share. Um, that I, I use as an example, not to say that Berkshire was great or terrible or Buffett's great or terrible, just to say that a share price now of two hundred eighty-six thousand dollars seems crazy, and it kind of it almost is, right? So it's almost it's almost ridiculous when you got a six-figure share price, but the fact it was seven thousand dollars thirty years ago is kind of the point. These businesses, when they're big enough, impressive enough, attractive enough, and think about the apples that you know, you know what's actually I find worse than the price per share. Apples, what three hundred bucks a share now, Doc? Something like that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's around three something, three twenty. That's, that's a trillion dollar company, right? So that's a trillion dollar company mm-hmm. at three hundred bucks a share. I, I'm more worried about that growing. Not not to get the apple conversation for what it's worth, but when I think about you know how big can something grow, as you say, the size of the company is far more important. Apple going from 300 to 600 bucks, or uh, Google going from 1700 to $3,400 a share. Yes, Google's share price is almost you know, 5x per share, but the market values of the companies aren't all that different. Apple is bigger, a doc will make me say. Um, but in any case, you know, it's, it's the sheer size of the business, not the per price per share that matters. So Tegan, I get it. I really honestly feel your pain. I've, I've had that experience of, I've actually bought the shares, but when you only have a couple of them, <laughs> it's just like, you know, I've got what, one or two of those things. That seems a bit weird. Um, but it, it, it really is important. It's worth it's worth asking the question. Perfect question. The only answer, mate, is just to honestly suck it up, just do it anyway, which I know sounds like a really kind of awful sort of, you know, somehow we should have a more persuasive answer. Uh, but, you know, tomorrow, that $900 company, if they literally split their shares 100 for one, you'd have $109 shares and you happily buy the stock even though the company value, the company prospects, the company history, the company uh, projects, none of that's changed. 
um, hopefully that gives you the sense of why you should ignore the price per share because you can manipulate the number of shares tomorrow. Like Berkshire could be a $2 share if it's split 100,000 for one, you know? Or conversely, by the way, it could be a $2 million share if it consolidated 10 for one. And so the, the price per share, it's just a marker. It's just a, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's much as hard to say. Look at the size of the business itself and how much potential it's got, as Doc says. All right, question from Chris, mate. Hi, Scott and Ivan. what a crazy time. I even fell behind with the podcast. Hope you and you both and the team are well. We are. Thank you, Chris. A few points. A few po- the audio is working well. Thank you. A great episode with Professor Warren Hogan. I agree. He was excellent. Anyone who missed it should find it. This is, I have two questions. Do you know any simple way of investing into ETFs as part of super? From what I heard, SMSF is quite complex, isn't it? And a second, you've been investing for some time already. What is your annual average rate of return since you started? Appreciate your great job, Chris. All right, mate, investing in ETFs is part of super. Is it hard? What shouldn't, well, okay, so I mean, there's, there's a lot more, uh, you know, accounting and uh, uh, compliance that you need to do when you have an SMSF, for example. So if assuming yes, if, <laughs> so assuming somebody has an SMSF and they're doing the compliance, then the investing part is not hard. But you just have to be aware that there is uh, a lot of compliance um, for all and all for the right reason involved in doing that. So that's that's the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's the I think the issue with uh, superannuation and ETFs should be just fine. There are lots of ETFs. I think in some mm-hmm. cases you are not allowed to invest in certain types of stocks because some of those platforms that become available to SMSFs don't allow you to buy certain stocks. That can happen, but you know yeah. ETFs. Most of the ETFs should be available. Would be my guess. So, yeah, look, I, I think you've probably, because you've probably heard the um, you've probably heard the comments or the chatter. I think it's easier than you imagine, but it depends on your superannuation provider. So most industry funds, I don't know about retail funds, Doc, I don't spend much time with them. We're certainly aware with Australian Super as our default fund at work. Now, I've got an SMSF, but, but Australian Super is our default fund. They have a do-it-yourself option where they allow you to invest, I think it's 80% of the money in the fund in investments you choose yourself, including ETFs. And it's really, they have a website, you can choose your allocation, it's actually really, really simple, easier than buying stocks. Um, so as long as your super fund offers it, you should be able to choose which ETFs to invest in within super without an SMSF. So simply an industry fund or maybe some retail funds offer, I'm sure they must. Um, you just simply choose the option, choose the DIY option, and then make your allocation. Really, really, really simple, as long as your fund offers it. If you're not sure, um, I suggest you give them a call and find out. Uh, so yeah, uh, SMSF are quite complex, isn't it? Oh, mate, I, it kind of is. So here's the thing, you've got to really want it. Um, there are some really good platforms that make it super easy. I'm with eSuperfund. I don't get paid for saying that. I get no discounts. I get no kickbacks. I'm just saying it because I, I, I have a minute. It only costs a few hundred bucks a year, maybe 700 bucks a year, I think, which isn't nothing. Um, but it's super easy, super automated, particularly if you're only investing in shares and cash, which I am. Not that I'm investing in cash, but I've got cash as, as part of that investing kind of process. Um, it's just really easy and it's relatively inexpensive. You have to know what you're doing. There are obligations as a trustee you need to be aware of. So don't go into it lightly, please, um, because I don't want you to be responsible for you know falling behind on paperwork or giving up after six months. Um, so I would I would start with your current super fund and say, hey, if you can buy ETFs within them, do that first. And then over time, if you get more confident, you take you want to take more control, then an SMSF is an option for you next. But start with start with what you got and go from there. Doc, do you know your average annual rate of return since you started investing? Um, I could give you a rough estimate. The reason I have to say rough because you know my investments are across multiple accounts. Um, I would guess it's probably around twenty-five to twenty-eight percent annualized. Oh, look out! 
killing me, mate. How long? What sort of time frame is that over? It's probably about over nearly eight, nine years, maybe ten years, eight, nine years. Nice. Well done, sir. Uh, I'll just push the envelope a little bit further. Would you do? You, would you share with us a couple of your biggest winning stocks? Yes. Yeah, so my biggest winner, which I no longer hold, was Netflix. I think when I sold it was a forty x. Uh, okay. 40 bagger right now what are my biggest winners uh, I had Facebook too which was a pretty big 8, 7, 8 bagger or something like that that one I no longer hold that um, Apple would be somewhere there in you know held it since 2011 maybe mm. or 10, 11 um, so that will be pretty much up there a lot of these stocks have added to which makes it really hard to tell mm. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. How, how much it is, the actual but performance, the actual yeah, performance yeah. largely because you know, um, it gets, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like in 2011, it should be like you know, 50 bucks split adjusted. So that's a six bagger, mm. excluding mm. dividends, somewhere around that. Um, yeah, so a lot of these have been huge, huge. Uh, there have been some really good ones, like you know, and then um, I've had. A company called Intuitive Surgical for a long time, which has mm-hmm. also done very well. So, Surgical Robot? Surgical Robot. Um, very cool. Nice one. Dude. Yeah. I use ShareSite. Um, again, no no, no kickbacks, unfortunately. No uh, no ownership, nothing else. Um, I gotta say, I don't. I only have a record going back about 11 or 12 years for my investing. I've been investing longer than that, but I didn't import the history that far back. So I can't give you everything. What I can say, and... and um, Chestnut also benchmarks against the uh, index. So my US in shares are up at 18.3% compared to the index of 6.6. So that's pretty good. I'm pretty happy with that. Um, my personal account is up. Let me just refresh here. Um, 17% against the index is 5. Again, different starting dates. So you got to kind of take... Actually, that goes back to 2006. So that's at least 14 years. So that's okay. Uh, and my super, our family super, um, is showing returns on a much shorter time frame of about 11.8%. But at that time, the market's down eight. So um, it's it's all it's all swings and roundabouts. Decent outperformance. I will say for both. I mean, Doc, I won't say for Doc because he's allowed to take his lap of glory. Certainly killing me. Um, you know, I never ever ever want to take victory laps on this podcast or anywhere else. So tomorrow could be a terrible day. And we could lose a fortune. Some of my favourite stocks and bigger stocks could crash, and I could be eating a humble pie. So we've done okay so far. Um, the other thing is, as our boss rightly says, Doc, it doesn't matter what my returns are, it matters what our members' returns. In this case, our listeners' returns are, not what I've done. So, um, And we've done okay with our services too. EO and SA are both well and truly beating the market. That, again, that can fluctuate, so I'm not going to take victory laps there either. But hopefully we've shown through our personal and professional investing uh, that we've done a decent job, at least you know, pretty decent job of, of delivering some, some pretty good returns. Yeah, I'll just quickly add one more, one quick thing. You know, one of the things that... So if you ask me this question... Um, you know, a couple of months back, right? The number would be really different. Yep. So my portfolio, for example, yeah, exactly. so, so, so I don't know about your portfolio, but my portfolio. I've got to ask now rather than rather. Well, well like you, yeah, if you just asked me a couple of, you know, like my portfolio really swings. So, so you asked me today, well, it's, you know, it's pretty high. You know, it's probably hitting all time highs, yeah. right? But you asked me a couple of, you know, my, my portfolio uh, would drop. 30%, 40% yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on on a market pullback, largely because it is it is pretty aggressively positioned, and um, and and therefore it 
you know, while while the market is doing well, it does better than the market. But if the market is doing poorly, it does worse <laughs> than the market. So, so I just assume yeah, um, yeah. that's that's the case. So we'll say what's funny, mate, is is largely I want you to have my portfolio because you know this is a, a little secret, and hopefully my beautiful wife isn't listening. Um, I pay much more attention to our portfolio services and our service on our on our on the multi fools for our members than I do with my own personal portfolio. So I don't track my portfolio as closely as I do our our scorecards. Um, interestingly enough, it's funny different styles, mate. So your portfolio, and I imagine your service does better when the market's growing, um, when growth is in the ascendancy. I got to say, Share Advisor was actually coming back to the field a little bit during some of the go go days of um, 18, 19, early 20. Uh, we, we were seeing that, that, you know, that gap shrink really meaningfully because we didn't have an overabundance of tech stocks, for example. And we've actually been able to show some value to our members in, you know, we're always beating the market, but it was getting a bit narrow for a bit there. Um, it's expanded meaningfully after the crash. We've, we've focused on quality, um, and again, not the expensive growth, and, and EOSA aren't opposites. My point is more that we're both beating the market meaningfully with slightly different kind of volatility components or different kind of ups and downs, but overall, the, the foolish approach of business-focused investing um, of thinking about companies, not just tickers or charts or whatever, is, is flowing through in two very, very different ways, but you know, giving the same kind of positive market-beating returns to our members despite that. So it's kind of a, it's, it's all, I always love it, mate, that we can have very different approaches across our services, but the fundamental underpinnings are solid enough that we still manage across the business to be market beating most of the time. Yeah, exactly. And so pretty happy yeah, and I think that this last point that you made about volatility, I think that's very important for people to understand because, you know, like it, it is, you really need to understand what, how much volatility as an investor you can tolerate. Right. It's, mm. you know, if you say that, you know, it's, it's, you can tolerate a lot of volatility and therefore you, you pick the higher volatility style then, you know, when the volatility is going to be actually against you, you will probably be running for the hill. So you really need, you know, understanding uh, yeah, what right. what you can handle. And that's why we have all these different types, point, different yeah. types of services, right? I mean, for someone, dividend-based dividend, dividend based service is probably what you want. For somebody, they, you know, mm-hmm. they want a mid-cap growth. Somebody, they maybe want small-cap growth, right? Uh, and, and maybe if somebody wants just an income, just a pure income focus. So I think that's really important to understand what people want. Yeah. Very nice, mate. One last question. I'll just squeeze in through the through the mail slot before we wrap up for today. A question from a bloke called Scott. Now, it's not me. Um, David Gardner, one of our co-founders on his podcast, occasionally asks questions from himself when he has a point to make. I hasn't done it for a while, actually. Uh, I don't think we've ever done it. Maybe we have, in which case I apologize. But a question from another Scott, I promise. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a new listener, having discovered you a few months ago just as the market started going crazy. It's been great to have a plain English and good humoured take on what on earth is going on. I have a question for the podcast. I've been looking at ETFs that give you global exposure, in particular the index's total US shares, NASDAQ, the S&P 500, and some interesting ones such as the Morningstar Wide Moat and MSCI World Quality, including, excluding sorry, Australia. That's a decent list. My first take is that owning each of these would offer their own unique advantages and provide some good diversification. However, on further thought, I realize there's a lot of overlap between them. So my question is this, are you better off getting a piece of each of these ETFs or is it better to just pick which ETF you think offers the best long-term return and put your money into that? Keep up the good work, Scott. So Doc, let me go again. It's a long list and we'll be a bit bamboozling. The total US shares index, in other words, every US company, the NASDAQ 100, the S&P 500, which is a top 500 stocks across both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. So obviously there's some implicit overlap there. And some interesting ones such as the Morningstar Wide Moat 
and the MSCI World Quality, excluding Australia. So what is it, mate? A piece of each or pick a winner? Well, okay. okay. So actually what, what you've, he has got here is he's got three which are basically indices, right? Uh, and yep. one which is more of an actively managed type of ETF, right? And, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, wide moat, for example, is a recommendation in your service, right? Um, it is. And so here's the thing, right? It is true that some of these overlap with the wide moat. You would take the you're taking the view that the strategy that the Morningstar used, which is a combination of, you know, valuation and moat. You know, their their way of definition of moat, and then essentially holding a relatively concentrated set of stocks that they you know actually prune and so on. It's going to work. It has it has been a it's been a market beater, stellar market beater actually over mm. over the past decade. Um, so maybe the strategy still holds and works well. So I mean that you have to realize that other if you. If if you if you're okay with that, then that actually is, I like that as as a as an ETF a lot. Um, in terms of the overlap, like I mean, sometimes it seems like the so if you get the U.S. total shares, then it almost seems like there's less value to getting the. Um, the S and P five hundred, for example, because you know the the most of the mm-hmm. the total shares of the U S are going to look close enough to the S and P five hundred's return. Uh, I would say, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I'm just guessing that you know those five hundred large companies are going to going to meaningfully impact mm. the results. Um, Nasdaq would add you you know giving more overweight to tech, which you know is also represented in this. So you know, is it? There's a lot of duplication. That's probably okay. You're gonna get a mixture, you know, weighted return of those. Um, but maybe sometimes, you know, again, thinking about both what you want to do, what you're comfortable holding, and sort of how much volatility you are willing to, you know, trade. I guess for you know the type of returns you want to get. That's what, you know, I would focus on. Uh, I mean, if you hold all of them, you're going to get a lot of duplication, which seems unnecessary to me at a very high level. So, um, you know, you'd have to pick and choose some of them. Nice. I I find this answer a little bit like the question we had from Sarah earlier in regards to individual companies versus the ETF, right? I think there's no hard, there is absolutely overlap. So let's, let's be really, really clear. There's absolutely overlap. Um, and that's okay if you're comfortable with the overlap in terms of what it does to your overall portfolio. You're kind of building an index of indexes. And if you're buying the total US plus the S&P 500, what you're effectively doing is overweighting top 500 stocks because you're getting them in the fi- in the original total US plus a second lot with the 500, right? So you're kind of effectively doubling up on the top biggest businesses. You're getting two, two lots of that and one lot of the rest of them. And if that's a conscious choice you actually want, then great. I'm tipping from the way you asked the question that that maybe isn't exactly what you specifically were looking for. Um, and I think that's, again, really important. Now, it is worth saying, by the way, for example, the S&P 500 is up 13.1% over 10 years per annum. That is, by the way, the last 10 years. The total market is up 15%. So it's turned out that in the US, for example, the total market is better than the 500 because the smaller businesses have outperformed the big ones, which is what you'd expect, right? So if the 500 is the top 500 and the total market is plus the rest, and the total market is bigger, or better, sorry, grown faster, then the rest in a group, just call it the rest, capital T, capital R, have outperformed the 500. So there, you know, there are some differences there, and if you had a particular view as to what you wanted, 
I'd go with it. Now, it does sound like you don't really have a particular strategy in mind. I don't mean that as a, a criticism, Scott. Just the way you're asking the question, I think it's probably you didn't specifically say, look, I really want to double up on the big companies or I did, did you know. The other thing is the S&P 500 includes a whole lot of the NASDAQ as well. So owning all three, you end up with a kind of two and a half times the NASDAQ, <laughs> two times the 500 and one lot of the rest. And again, if you're choosing that, that's fantastic. I would say... Because you're investing in, it depends on your strategy, kind of as Doc's alluding to, right? So if you want a purely index approach, total US shares would be the way I would go. Similarly, here in Australia, we choose to track as our benchmark the All Ordinaries rather than the ASX 200. Is there a big difference? No, but the All Lords is simply more representative because there's more companies. About 500 companies in the All Lords, about 200 in the ASX 200, unsurprisingly. And so that's why, that's how the maths works, right? So. I, you know, if you're trying to follow an index or a market and you say, I want broadest exposure to the sum total of listed capitalism in my index, then I would go with the largest indices you could find if that's if that's specifically your approach. And so in that case, I don't think I would bother doubling up with the NASDAQ and the S&P if you had the total US shares and similarly Australia. Um, again, though, as you say, the world quality excluding Australia would then by definition include the US. You are getting two lots of that. And the US is what? Doc, about 40%? No, it's more. It's about 55%, isn't it, of the, of the world's capital markets. So again, if you buy the MSCI world, you're getting, again, one and a half times the US if you own the, the total market as well. If I was to buy, you know, for me in Australia, I, I would happily own a, you know, rest of the world index and then my local stocks, for example, and so I get full global diversification. Uh, I also, as we said before, I think the US market is sufficiently diversified in terms of not only the industries, but also, frankly, the countries that the businesses operate in. If you're Google or Apple or Facebook or Netflix, um, you're operating in almost every country around the world in some form or other anyway, so you don't really need to invest in the Chinese, Taiwan, Singaporean, UK, New Zealand stock exchanges if Netflix, Facebook, Google already have businesses in those areas. So. The S&P 500 alone or the US shares alone probably gives you enough global. That being said, I do own the, the Vanguard VGS world excluding Australia. So I actually do own more than that. I get some European and some Asian and other stuff in there. Um, it's a bit of a rambling answer because I don't really have a strong answer for you, Scott. It kind of depends on what you're looking for. Uh, I don't think I would I don't think I would own them all. I think you probably, unless you're doing deliberately, doesn't make a whole heap of sense. But again, there's no cost in doing it, right? Because you're still getting just a, a random selection of diversified indices, which is completely fine. Any more on that, Doc, before I wander off my own little reservation here? No, I, I really don't have anything else. I think you gave a very good answer. Beautiful. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you will, here is how you do it. If you're on Twitter, and we hope you are, because that's kind of fun. We had a bit of an exchange today, didn't we, Doc, about A2 Milk and Blackmores. Mm -hmm. We're recording this on Thursday, so if you want to know our thoughts on A2 Milk and Blackmores and see the conversation we had with a couple of our listeners, then jump on Twitter. I'm at TMF Scott P. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti, and the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. Follow those accounting, talk to us, message us. Um, we normally interact pretty well with, with our listeners and members, so jump on there on the Twitters. If you want to jump on Instagram, so far at least we haven't been successful with our Get Doc on Insta hashtag. So for now, it's only me at TMF Scott P and the Motley Fool again at the Motley Fool AU. Pretty straightforward. And on Facebook, the Motley Fool Australia is our page in our inbox. You can inbox us there. Or I'm Scott Phillips Money. If you want to email us, you can email us at info at fool.com.au and our wonderful member services, Fool, will make sure the questions or comments get straight to us. So give us some correspondence. Throw us a note. Let us know if you've got any thoughts, questions or comments. Certainly questions for the mailbag because this is almost the funnest part of our week, I have to say. Um, 
I reckon that's about it, Doc. That's it, yes. I think we're done. It's Sunday afternoon, we're off for a beer. Well, <laughs> metaphorically anyway. It's only Thursday afternoon, but we'll, we'll go with it. All right, that's wrap us up. I'm coughing, I've, I've, uh, I've even outdone myself. That wraps us up, mate. But before we go, don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us some stars, throw us a review, give us some love. It helps us be seen by more people and frankly it's good for our egos and you don't want to you don't want to be too tough with us surely all right don't forget you can also get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money special still special mailbag edition we'll be back on tuesday with some motley fool money hacks talk to you then and fool on fool on The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.